0: Good day everyone. Welcome to the CSU Relentless Gardener podcast. I am Colorado State University horticulture specialist Linda Langelo and joining me today is Melissa Schreiner, entomologist of the Tri-River area. Now let's get to the heart of it where we explore the horticulture topic of winter insects. Hello Melissa. Good morning Linda. Glad you could join
1: me today. Yes, thanks for having me. So glad to be here again.
0: I know this is a favorite topic of yours.
1: <laughs> my so, heart. Yeah.
0: So what what uh what are the most
1: common winter insects? So it's such an interesting question. And you know, from the perspective of gardeners, whether it's bees nestled in their cavities for the winter, feeding on honey they've prepared all year by pollinating flowers and gathering that nectar ultimately, or if it's grubs in trees or in the ground, um, from that perspective, it, the ones that are most encountered likely by gardeners in the winter are ones that end up in our homes, but by far the most common insects in the winter that are active are in our rivers, are in our our lakes, our streams. So it's all about life cycles when it comes to winter, especially in Colorado, because we we live in the Southern Rockies, most of our state. Anyway, um, of course, we've got cold winters on the Great Plains as well. Don't don't leave out either end of the state. We get cold here. So in insects and arthropods in general have often evolved to have life cycles that line up with, you know, them being an egg protected over the wintertime or them being in the pupil stage. Um, it's more rare that we would find insects maybe active as larvae or flying around as adults in the winter time when it's so frigid. So not that they're um, any less common in the winter. they're they're out there. They're burrowed away um, in diapause, not quite like hibernation, but all of you know all of their processes slow down. and we'll talk today about some of the interesting adaptations that allow them to survive um, over those cold temperatures and long winter months here in Colorado. Well, it's, it's
0: like, you know, there, there are a lot of insects that burrow down into the crevices of tree bark and right. people aren't aware of it. And if you don't catch it before they do that, then you're going to, it's
1: going to cycle back around a lot of times. Out in the spring as adults, um, you know, all of our, our honeybees from Europe that we keep in boxes are, you know, they're active, they're, they're tucked away, they're, um, it's it's amazing if you look at honeybee hives with thermal cameras in the winter. You can see they're they're still warm in there and they're just they're not active. They're they're leaving the hive to go to the bathroom and they come back in and that's that's about it. Um they're they're not out interacting with those plants. Um so it's often about life cycle when when we're we're thinking about insects, but by far the the rivers and the lakes are are teeming with life um at wow. this year. Um all of our dragonflies are are immature at this time feasting on you know all kinds of things in in, in the water um i would say it, it's really amazing to look at aquatic biology and consider all that's going on at, at this time of year um underneath the the water um in lentic and lotic habitats so one's the water that is flowing and water in lakes that are standing still um we've got amazing biology here in colorado for aquatic life um and this is important because of wildlife, um, wildlife that is active in the winter. Um, you know, fish, you know, to some extent aren't feeding heavily in the winter, but when they are, they're, they're likely feeding on these aquatic insects. So it's all about that food chain and how insects are really the foundation of that. And in the winter, there are, there are plenty of insects being eaten, um, before bears hibernate in the winter. There's areas of the world that bears are eating, you know, a third of their diet are ant larvae that they're Foraging and ripping the mountainsides apart to consume that fatty protein source. Um, when when bears can, you know, side side tangent here, but when bears attack beehives, it's often thought that they're, you know, there for the honey, which I'm sure doesn't hurt. But what what bears are there for? Are the, those grubs, that that source of protein. Um, so yes, ants are very important in in the bear diet. So I, I just learned this. I thought it was something. Wow. All, it's all connected back to yeah it. yeah absolutely we are all connected so what
0: about the ones that get inside our house houses and we just think oh you know the box elder bugs and the yeah. nuisance, the nuisance ones that we can never seem to get
1: rid of it's those nuisance invaders famously coined that term um you know i believe Whitney Crenshaw may have been one of the first to start using that term nuisance invaders and it really it, it refers to those insects that are maybe that time of their life, they're, they're not going to reproduce within the home. They're not going to breed there, but it's the, an outside environment that maybe forces them inside. Maybe they're almost like the Goldilocks insects. So, you know, not too hot, not too cold. And they will, they'll enter inside the home to escape the outdoor environment because it's too harsh for them at that, that period of time. And they take shelter, um, in in your house the the free lodging is there to take and they 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 enter and uh, they can cause all kinds of um annoyances of course um they come in through screens and um i was just thinking of a i mean they can be pretty extreme examples here in urie county it was years ago box elder bugs shut down the it was either the county or the city computer system because they flocked into the computers so Insects can cause us quite a bit of of hassle, of course, indoors. and um in the winter it's it's often you know, once that you know the last few months, my phone's been ringing um because elm seed bugs here in Western Colorado we have we do have an invasive species from from Europe. It showed up in Idaho and it's living in Siberian elm. It feasts on the seeds and then the adults are alive all winter and when it's hot in the summer, they come in for the AC, and when it gets cold in the fall, they're coming inside for our heat. So they're they're very much not. Um, I think you know they're not thriving here by any means in our environment. But we they're taking advantage of that urban um, our neighborhoods. They are oh. in the of our homes in our firewood piles outside, just taking shelter. And the, they're quite annoying. They they leave feces all over the window sills and they smell horrible when they're crushed. They're they're almost a similar insect. They're quite smaller compared to a box elder bug, but they're a true bug in the order Hemiptera, similarly so. And the numbers are, are against us. It's just a numbers game when it comes to certain insects and especially when they decide to come within our home because we have a neighborhood of, of their host around, around those homes. And our, our homes are a part of the ecosystem as much as it is a, some of us may not want to to know or admit that. Right. It's very true right. to have crossover there, so. Right,
0: and, and I remember several years ago, uh, the Julesburg Elementary School over here on the Eastern side of the state uh, called me and I think it was late March and it was warm and uh, they were trying to get the kids in through this one side a school door and they wanted to know what was crawling along the sidewalk and up the building and it was spider mites it was a whole huge huge migration of them and it just it just totally freaked them out and you know I have a friend in in uh, another state and she didn't turn her heater on and a uh, stink bug came in and shut the system down before it- it even got started. So I mean they they really can can wreak havoc on our lives, but they've adapted. You know, we, we came along and we built these nice shelters and they they figured it out. It's just uh amazing
1: how short of a time that they can do that, really. They do evolve quickly and it doesn't it, you know, it's the survival of the fittest and you know what is driving um All of this behavior are, you know, in the environment is somehow limiting that species or, you know, in order to survive, that species must change. And so very quickly that that happens within genetics just takes a few generations for insects to go, you know, from completely a different color to another um, to blend in. Maybe the environment changes. I there's there's lots of examples of um, just a few generations' time is all it takes for insects to, in a major way, change to... to Persevering to make it year after year, and you know when you talk about
0: generations, there could be three generations of an insect in one season. So wow. by by next season, they figured it out, and so that's how fast to give people uh, some sort of a time frame to connect this to. Uh, so so what are a few of those major migrating insects that can really, if we see them, sort of oh I don't know, unsettle us. <laughs>
1: You know, in, it's not necessarily in the wintertime. One one example I've seen of a really large insect migration was of false chinch bugs on the Front Range in northern Colorado. Um, and it feels as though the ground is moving and they're just moving areas. Um, and there's likely millions of them doing so. And you encounter something like that and or a mayfly hatch in, in the summertime. And there's, you know, insects, you know, four inches deep <laughs> covering, you know, the gas you know, uh, uh, thing when you're trying to get gas at your car, you know, they're attracted to lights. And it's, it's amazing to see when insects do decide to, you know, when there's a hatch or when there's a migration, we encounter them in large numbers. It it can be quite alarming, but you know, in the winter time, for the most part, I can't think of any massive migrations that are occurring, except really into our homes, just to seek that suitable environment. Um, that, that warm, that warm air. Are
0: there, uh, some of them very serious or
1: invasive species that you would tell folks about now. You no know, statewide, we. I'm trying to get more data on if there's elm seed bugs on the Front Range. My my consensus is not yet. Um, we here in Western Colorado, I would say most counties I I encounter, especially in the western part of the state, we we have a real issue with these very small true bugs that are entering our homes pretty much all times of the year. Um, they're associated with the millions of Siberian elm trees here. Um, in the spring, those you know nymphs are the eggs are associated with the flowers of elm, and then when the seeds form, they're feeding on them, and then all the seeds drop, and then millions of these insects drop onto the ground. And gardeners here are, you know, the phone rings off the hook at, at extension, and really everywhere because folks are encountering. know a very large amount of these insects and they they are invasive they're they're not reproducing in the home they're you know not damaging in the way that they're you know vectoring a disease to us i mean insects can have all scales of harm that they cause people and um it's often that some of these nuisance invaders are so alarming to people it, it alarms them you know so much it really can affect the quality of life but we're lucky some of these insects are not actually breeding within our homes even though it may feel that they're there with us doing so, it's not the case. They're not there vectoring a disease to us. So we're we're really safe. It's just that they're annoying and they're present and we're having to clean them up constantly. So they're, they are part of our daily, daily lives. And it, yeah, they, the elm seed bug is really the only invasive species that I can think of that here in Colorado, within homes this time of year in the winter, we're really, really battling, Um, at, at least from my perspective in the West, that that's something that keeps keeps us busy
0: they're they're here too and you know you don't not necessarily all the time but they're here and and they all have their place and their purpose so you know and in, in the bigger picture i guess that's something we just have to keep in perspective although it is a, an annoyance if you know
1: it's a numbers game and it's not realistic We don't have the infrastructure or the funding to go and remove every elm tree or spray every elm tree or to to manage some biology. My point is, it's almost impossible to. And it does become that we must learn to accept and live with this problem. And not everyone's happy when I'm telling them this, when they're they're telling me they want to sell their home because there's millions of insects. and it's not, of course, always to that scale. There is, and that's what's interesting, especially with these elm seed bugs, is some folks have five to a dozen and some are dealing with and battling thousands of them entering their home. So it's um, it's all it's all a matter of how you look at it. And some folks are more unlucky than others um, when well, it comes to invasions, so. Well,
0: I, I hate to think how many spider mites were crawling across the sidewalk onto the elementary school building, uh, you know, uh, the it, it really I, it's really unsettling but you know it is what it is and uh, anyway you deal with it so what are the most active
1: adults in the winter for insects i think it's a great question because i i would say for the most part it would probably come back to some of these aquatic insects. If you were to go out and go snowshoeing or go up into a you know, winter habitat in Rocky Mountain National Park and you were to look at a snowfield, you would see potentially winter scorpion flies in the family Boreidae. I mean, insects that are predators hunting across the snow looking for insects that on warmer days are out and then they hunt them when it gets too cold for them later on. And um, I would say things like our winter stoneflies that are a wonderful group that, you know, some of our fly fishermen, that whole community, you know, an $80 million industry in the U.S. um, Folks are, you know, very intrigued by the behavior and biology of insects in the winter, especially, I mean, folks are fishing for fish and, you know, fish are still out there eating insects in the winter. And so these fly fishermen are learning about, you know, the different adult and larval stages of insects, you know, pretty much all year round. And in the winter, it's fascinating to, to take a sweep net out into the quiet winter habitat and to to see what you find in some of that, um, pretty much all of the dead leaves. But it's amazing that there are still insects out there. There are insects living, you know, in the, the very deepest lakes around the world, Chironomid midges. Um, we have insects that are found high up in you know, the aerome high up where airplanes fly, there are spiders flying around um, in the wind currents. All I mean, there's just this massive biome of insects moving around constantly, pretty much every natural space arthropods are inhabiting. And so all year round, you know, spring, summer, fall, winter, we we have, have activity out there. It's just, you know, learning where to find it. And um, I want to highlight one One insect that is somewhat of an anomaly here in Colorado, it's called the morning cloak butterfly. And it happens to overwinter as an adult here in Colorado. It's very rare that you would see behavior like that from an insect. Typically, you know, they would be eggs or they would be in a pupil stage buried in the ground. And, you know, a delicate scale winged insect like a moth or a butterfly They they can exist in the winter, and it's just quite a testament to show how resilient some species are. But the morning cook butterfly, um, I really encourage listeners just to take a moment and and look that insect up and become familiar. It's not only a beautiful butterfly, um, they look somewhat like leaves, but they have bright, almost maroon brown colors, a beautiful tan and a sky blue patterning of scales. They're gorgeous. And when you see them, when you're hiking out in the winter, you've gotten cabin fever and you're you have a warm day, maybe it's fifty degrees out, you go out and you can see these insects. And as it gets closer to spring, you'll see you'll see them mating. And then on the willows and in, in the very early spring, we see their larvae hatching. And it's it's a wonderful thing to encounter. Um, this butterfly that can overwinter as an adult. How how it does it is a mystery to to all of us, really. Special. Wow. wow. So, you know, I you can say that uh,
0: mother nature is really not sleeping in the winter
1: you are that's a great great way to look at it
0: and and for anybody who is 4-h and likes insects should go out in the winter time as well as you know during the summer for their you know collection that that would be fascinating a winter summer collection
1: exactly and take your camera with you and you know make sure that you know you're ready for it an adventurous time. It's always a surprise. What I find, I, I intentionally go out in the winter time to see what is there. And I always surprise myself. Oh, you know, try to convince myself, oh, maybe it's too cold. I won't go today. But the days I do get out, um, I'm always rewarded with something, some beautiful um, experience with wildlife or um, I, I highly encourage, you know, taking taking that camera. Um, but if you're, an, you know, if you're an aspiring entomologist, you can take that aquatic insect, you know, insect dipping net, and you could go out into the streams and you really will prove to yourself just how much biology is um in that river and how much uh you're able to find those caddisfly larvae, the stonefly, mayfly larvae, um, predaceous diving beetles. Um I mean you name it, it's amazing to see what what is out there. You know, I encourage everyone to be safe when they're working, you know, around water rivers and lakes are dangerous. Um, it's important, especially when it's icy to be extra careful. Um, I've got some pretty cr- crazy photos off to show you some time window of us collecting insects in the winter time over ice and a lot of safety has to be involved. Never go alone, but um, I highly encourage that you do go and see what's out there in the winter. There's, um, yes, Mother nature is not sleeping. That is a good way to put it. So if somebody is interested in in collecting,
0: is there an app? I don't I don't do this, so I don't know uh one in particular that you it would uh, guide guide the audience to for you know putting on their phone and
1: helping them ID an insect you know it's it is really tough to and we're getting we're getting so close to with ai and all these apps for years they've existed um i can't think of one exactly i think the most helpful thing to participate in are things like I think iNaturalist, if I had to come up with one, because a lot of that is double checked by other other um, you know, people in the environment using iNaturalist are helping to fact check, and there is somewhat of a a great community to participate in with iNaturalist. Um I I participate in um what is it called? Um IPM images where the images I take. Scientific images I label and donate to for use. Um, it's a massive database. It's called um, Bugwood Wiki as well. Um, it's an older name, um, but the, these are just—they're um, more like websites that I'm I use as resources. I'm I'm less so naming apps right now that would maybe identify an insect. I find that there's some level of error. You always want to be careful. I I'm more someone that is still clinging to my paper field guide. And um, I'll go on to Bug Guide, a website run by Iowa State University Extension, wonderful services for identifying insects. Um, I use some of these websites to help myself identify um, insects. And of course, you know, as an entomologist, I use keys. I am trained to use dichotomous keys to when I don't know what's in front of me, I, I have to key it out, as they say, and figure out exactly what characteristics it does and does not have. And Pretty much choose your own adventure in, until you find the species that you're you're looking for. Um, yes, um, I wish I had a better app to suggest. I would say don't be too quick to trust apps. That would maybe be my one one recommendation. If you do find an app out there, um, don't take every, everything that it says as a hundred percent. Try to use some of these other resources like iNaturalist, like Bugwood. Um, to, to help rule out if that's really the identification that is the proper one. And, and, or asking an extension expert.
0: <laughs> How's that? <laughs> and and I have heard of iNaturals now that you've said it. Uh, I didn't, I didn't know it, it did insects
1: as well, but <clears throat> that's good to know. Yeah, community of birders are on there, folks with plants, insects, yeah, it's um. Becoming more diverse as folks learn about it and use wow. it. I'm I'm not on iNaturalist. I really need to be. I've you know thousands of photos. I'd love to share. Just that yeah. winter project is what really needs to happen. But yeah, I encourage yeah. You to participate in those those communities, especially you know if you're a naturalist. We spend so much time out, you know, in nature. But it is wonderful to find others that enjoy you know those same those same things as you, and it's a great way to connect with with other like minded folks.
0: Right, right. Are there any interesting or surprising examples that you have of insect adaptations for winter survival? Yes, you know, I'll I'll share, I'll share
1: one that I think is just, it has to be shared. It's one of the most fascinating. Um, there are insects that, just like ethylene glycol for your, your car's radiator, keeps, um, that liquid from freezing in the winter. Insects actually use, and this is um, there's not one particular insect I'm thinking of. There's this is used in many ways across the insect king, you know, the class. Um, and basically proteins in the insect blood or the, in their hemolymph, as, as entomologists call it, um, prevent freezing and they're able to be suspended in animation. There are insects in the coldest parts of our, our planet that get almost. If they're not frozen completely solid around them, you know, I, I would say they—they they basically can survive through freezing ice. They're massive ice blocks, and they're just filling their blood full of proteins, allowing them not to freeze completely solid. Um, that is an amazing adaptation to me. Um, I, I could talk for hours about adaptations that allow for for insects to survive. That's one that's very unique, and um, that's somewhat of a an attractive fact but I mean the desert seed harvesters that all year long harvest seeds and cash them into pantries and then are able to survive not only the desert in the summer but the winter because they have a pantry of seeds stored I mean there's there's excellent examples of of how insects um, have have learned to live in their environments and use their their time wisely and um, survive an upcoming season ahead um, it's it's quite wonderful to we we'll have to we we'll have to have a whole podcast on that i think just that okay to-
0: okay i mean that's fascinating to me i mean i don't know how long an insect can survive in a block of ice you know days weeks months uh you know awesome. i i guess it, it, awesome. it yeah it varies from species to species and then you know
1: um the, we could really learn from them <laughs> and so many of our um scientific advancements we can Link back to to the animal kingdom um, broadly, but many um, like I know when they're they were learning to make gears, they were looking at insects because some of the one of the only occurring natural gears um, that naturally work together in the environment come from I think it's a I think it's a plant hopper leg. I could be incorrect on that. I should probably fact check that, but it's really interesting to look at just adaptations and how we can apply that to making better materials or stronger materials. They look at spider silk all the time. It's one of the most, you know, the strongest material. Um, one of one of the strongest materials out there. Um, pretty incredible. Well, this is sort of a, a side thing,
0: but uh, I have a friend that volunteers at the Hogle Zoo and the elephants there, they draw blood out of their ears and uh, Utah State University is looking at the blood to figure out why elephants don't get cancer and wow. so wouldn't that be great if they could narrow it down to a substance that could be replicated for mankind
1: it really is i think all, all the answers are out there we just need you know minds actively working together to to try to find solutions and solve problems and i hope it really inspires the the young people of their, our planet to you know work together and solve solve these problems because there are so many interesting ones yet to to look at what we know about the natural world i think is um absolutely a place to start in trying to find a solution to to a lot of our issues that we we have today
0: well and it comes back to everything has its purpose everything has its place and you know whether we understand it or not it, we,
1: we we need to make better use of it period and just, yeah, to respect that there's so much more to discover out there. And likely the answer is, you know, just waiting to be discovered and, um, um, folks listening. Yeah. Really get, get excited about the natural world. Um, there are so many wonderful things to observe and especially those with kids, um, exposing them to that. I think it's just so highly critical. And and you live in Colorado or elsewhere, um, getting outside is just, it is so infinitely important. Um, not only for your health, but to, you know, to learn about um, all these wonderful um, animals and just wildlife around us in our, in our ecosystems, wherever we live.
0: Well, let me give you one quick example. It's, I, I feed the birds, okay? And um, last year I had feeders at two different sides of the front yard, one under a pine tree and, and one in a Harrison rose, and it had some other shrubs around it. And so, they were eating from both groups of feeders at the same time. But this year, when I filled the feeders in both locations, it's like they communicated to each other, we're gonna just eat off of these feeders and when those feeders get empty, we're gonna cross the yard. If it's a really bad snowing day, we're gonna eat everything there. And so I'm not feeding two sets of feeders now. I'm feeding the primary space and then there's the secondary space. And that took one season. <laughs> <laughs> that's observation. You, you know, you you would I have figured that out or known that if I had not fed the birds? No. That's just that's just fascinating how as a flock,
1: uh they they've learned this. Yeah, there's a lot of intelligence. I mean, I think human human arrogance, frankly, gets in the way. We often think humans know best and know all, and everything's, you know, out to get us or hurt us. I mean, I, I tell people all the time, you know, insect venom is is not primarily t- to harm us. It's secondarily used as defense. I mean, it's primarily for for insects and arachnids to digest their food externally and have means to do so, and venom is their their agent to do that. and Right. It's not all just you know because they're out to get us and to harm us. I think humans have a, a real, real way of looking at things sometimes that we've um, got to course correct and just remember how much intelligence, ancient intelligence, is existing. Exactly. In that you're unplugged from because we're we're plugged into into our day to day. Exactly. Well, I'd hate to
0: tell the meteorologists <laughs> how wrong, how many times they're wrong when I see the birds speed up and feeding the day before and they are still trying to decide on the percentage of snow, the severity of the storm, and those birds already know. And yeah. it's um, it's just amazing. And I, and I know that. I just, you know, you look for it. <laughs> uh, what can I say? You know, there's a lot of observation we're missing but like you said, great idea. Go out into nature and enjoy it all times of the year. So, so, so what's your favorite? If you if you it's like asking me what my
1: favorite flower is. What's your favorite insect? Oh, it's so hard. I, I'd <laughs> like, I'd likely pick one of the more unknown or underappreciated groups to to highlight them. But I I tend to like those for that very reason. They're just um they're undiscovered by many um wasps are so misunderstood um many of our social wasps that act more aggressively because they have you know they're part of a social organism they potentially are you know without water or they're stressed or i mean you name it they are much more guarded and they give all you know the thousands of wasps native wasp species that are more solitary a bad name even um invasive species like the European paper wasps that come in give wasps a bad name, but we have wonderful native paper wasps. We have wonderful solitary hunting wasps that are out there doing, you know, beneficial services for the ecosystem. Maybe they're eating or you know, eating a caterpillar that's gonna grow up and eat eat an apple, or you know, it's they're having some, some type of ecosystem suppression by eating some of the this pest biology. Um, maybe they're a parasite of a grasshopper that will grow up and eat hay fields um, there's lots of um, indirect you know but very important services that wasps are providing and um, I find them to be beautiful to photograph I love to take photos of insects and the the stinging insects are my favorite Linda yes I think <laughs> many people may think oh but the entomologist you know Melissa over there is a who knows? Um, I think it's just wonderful to look at groups of animals that that folks don't know much about and and learn about that biology and just become so intrigued by it. And it, it seems like we're all really missing out to me. Oh, everyone should learn more about wasps. They are awesome. <laughs>
0: okay, we'll duly note it. And and so we'll have to come back and talk about the research you do uh, in the Tri River area. That should be fascinating to folks so let's let's do that another time but thank you melissa for joining me today thanks for having me i
1: really appreciate being here
0: oh you're welcome a thank you to the audience for listening tune in next time when we get to the heart of the matter on another horticultural topic